My name is Ari, and I invite you all to sit down, and I get the privilege and honor to share our scripture today. And our scripture today is from Nehemiah 28:33. The rest of the people, priests, levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or gain grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy them from this on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, at the new moon feasts, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. Thank you, Ari. Appreciate that. So on November 11th, 1620, on the shores of Cape Cod, the passengers and crew of the Mayflower all assembled together to begin a document that would later become known as the Mayflower Compact. And their purpose, they said, was this. Having untaken for, undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, and the honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. See, the compact laid out their purpose and also their plan to form a governess in this first colony of what would later become the United States of America. And these heroic founders, they signed that document on the bottom as a pledge and a commitment of solidarity to this uncertain and challenging future together. So just less than a century and a half later, another important document was put together. That document we know is the Declaration of Independence. And that document bears the familiar words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this document, you see, it also concludes with this statement. It says, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And again, at the bottom of that document, once again, there are signatures of these brave founders binding their hearts together in a united effort that ultimately would cost them more than they could imagine. 
So last week in, the, in our series here, Pastor Ron shared us with us from Nehemiah 9. And in that we saw that the people, having heard the word of God, preached to them for multiple times and explained to them that their hearts became soft and open to God. And they began to repent. They began to confess the ways that they had seen their lives go astray from God's word. And then we saw at the very end of that chapter that they moved from a prayer to an actual pledge, that they pledged themselves to commit themselves to follow God's word. We see this in Nehemiah 9.38. The verse says this, In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And so in much the same way as the Mayflower Compact and the Declaration of Independence, the people of God demonstrated their commitment by signing a pledge, a covenant that they would follow God's word. And so what's the significance of that? Why is that a big deal? You know, as we've mentioned here in our series over the last several words, several weeks, that God's word had been stirring the faith of these people. They begin in their heart to connect with God and that revival was starting to break out amongst the people. It was growing stronger. Now, when we think of the word revival, right, we get these pictures of people, you know, all emotional, you know, and, and it's all about their emotions and their devotion. But just as we kind of witness in our own lives, and isn't this true, it's true for me anyway, that there's times, you know, I can think of times when I've sinned, I've turned my back on God. And you know what? I feel bad. I do. Man, sometimes it even moves me to tears. But that emotion in and of itself never has any power to actually change my behavior. Isn't that discouraging or frustrating? You ever find it that way? You see, we can feel something very strongly about ways that we fall before God. But ultimately, just feeling bad about sin doesn't change us. You see, the truest sign of repentance is this. It's obedience. The truest sign of repentance is obedience. Now, obedience means that we actually change our actions, that we choose a different course, that we follow God's way. And those are the types of commitments that actually transform us. And the people of Israel here, they made specific commitments and they pledged themselves to those commitments by signing on the dotted line. And that's what we see here as we enter into the 10th chapter of Nehemiah, a whole list of signatures of people that are making a commitment to follow God's ways. It begins with Nehemiah in verse 1, and then it's followed by the 22 priests that are in verses 1 to 8. And then we see the Levites and their names and signatures in verses 9 to 13, the nobles and leaders in 14 to 27. And then finally in verse 28, it tells us that all the common people were also in agreement. You see, we know that when people have deep convictions about something, when they're moved, that they want to pledge themselves in a binding way. And so today we're going to look at four specific commitments that the people of God in Nehemiah's day committed themselves to and how those commitments transformed them and how those commitments might transform us as well. Now, before we even move on any further, I want to say this about commitment, because often we do, we make a pledge or we make a commitment to something, but the motive of our commitment is so important because when we're motivated 
by guilt or by fear, usually that commitment becomes a burden. But when we're motivated by love and dedication to God, those commitments become a joyous pursuit. Let's look at the first commitment that they made. That commitment was a commitment to read and obey God's word. Read and obey God's word. So as we mentioned, as God's word was read to the people, they began to actually hear his voice. They began to experience his presence. And as they did, their hearts were moved and they recognized and they revered him and they decided that they needed to choose to submit themselves to God's word. Nehemiah 10.29 tells this. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. To follow God's word. I think, you know, I think we really do. We, we kind of take for granted the treasure that we have in God's word, that in that book, the Bible, all of his thoughts, decrees, everything in there about God's story, about he, how he created us in his image to love and know and be in union with him, and then the story of how we rebelled and tore away from that and God's pursuit of us to draw us back. The story of God's word shows us his law, his mind, and how we can live in harmony with the way that we were created, to live in peace with the world that he created for us, in harmony, in love, and peace, and joy of a life connected to him and all he's created. Yet the world rejects God's word and calls it irrelevant and unprogressive, right? And I think, honestly, when we hear that or when we experience it, we recoil against that. You know, it, it offends us. And yet, isn't it true that when we fail to engage in God's word ourselves, that don't we show by our actions that maybe we agree and we don't see it as relevant and vital to our very life? And instead of clinging to every word, more often, don't we look for passages that might encourage us or make us feel good? And we tend to avoid maybe passages and verses and commands that we don't necessarily agree with. That maybe we do think are from a, a bygone day. Or maybe they just call out our sin and we don't want to look at that. We're very, very quick to embrace Jesus as our Savior. But not as quick to embrace him as our King and Lord and ruler of our life. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? That's a really good question, right? Obedience is the greatest sign and measure of our devotion. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so as apprentices of Jesus, of followers who want to be like him and follow him in his ways and chase after his heart, it's so important that we nurture a humble and dependent attitude toward God 
that we look to his word for guidance and direction in our life and that we follow that. We listen to the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to show us if our life is out of alignment with God's words and ways. And then when it doesn't align up, that we actually choose actions of obedience to get ourselves back in line again out of our love for God. Jesus said this. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so you see his ways, God's ways bring life and freedom and joy and peace. We need to know God's word, but we also need to show God's word. The next commitment is this. It's a commitment to lead our families. A commit to lead our families. So as the Israelites listen to God's word carefully, one of the areas that they realized that they were not following him, that they were disobeying him, is that they were giving their sons and daughters into marriage to the people around them who had different faiths than theirs. And they began to practice pagan practices that were beginning to subvert their own personal faith in God. Nehemiah 10.30 tells us this. Their promise was this. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, in today's society, let's face it, this sounds quite intolerant or maybe arrogant or even prejudiced, right? But I want you to hang with me. Let's dig into this a little bit and see what we're talking about here. First, we have to remember that in those days, you see, it was the parents that chose the spouse for the kids. The parents chose. Maybe you remember the song Matchmaker from the show Fiddler on the Roof. Do you remember that? Matchmaker, matchmaker, find me a match, find me a find, catch me a catch. <laughs> it's all about the parents going out, hiring a matchmaker to find the perfect match for their son or daughter. So before we had match.com, we had matchmaker with mom, right? <laughs> it was the parents that did the searching which sounds a little tempting sometimes, I have to admit. And often a family, they would make these choices based on wealth or power or prestige. Joseph, you need to find Caleb a Kardashian? <laughs> the problem was this. They were neglecting the most important thing, and that's that these spouses would share their same faith in God. You see, God's desire for our like-mindedness and faith has nothing to do with him being against any culture. The gospel of God and his message transcends all cultures. No, what it was about was cultivating their love for him and not allowing outside beliefs to diminish or compromise that faith, that connection with him as God. Years earlier, Joshua, if you remember the story of Joshua, he faced a similar situation as the children of Israel were leaving Egypt and entering into a new land flooded with pagan religions. And Joshua took a stand for his family. And it says this in Joshua 24, 15. He says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You see, some of these other Jewish families were clinging to the religion that they had left in Egypt. Some of them were adopting the practices of other foreign nations, like child sacrifice, sex with temple prostitutes, and worshiping demonic spirits. 
And this is something that Israel struggled with over and over again through its history. And one of the most tragic stories of all is the story of Solomon. Solomon who led the the nation of Israel to its pinnacle. But then he disobeyed God and he began to accumulate literally hundreds of foreign wives who brought with them a whole buffet of pagan worship. And sadly, in 1 Kings 11, it says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidoans, and Molech, the detestable god of the Amorites. On an east hill in Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And the Lord became angry because Solomon's heart had turned away from him. And you see, Solomon's actions not only affected his life, not only affected his family, but it decimated the entire nation of Israel, which was torn apart as a result of his spiritual adultery. And Israel never fully recovered from this, never recovered from this moral landslide. You see, separation isn't always a bad thing. And setting ourselves apart to God alone and guarding our heart against all others is similar to a marriage vow, a vow in which we commit ourselves to one spouse and one mate, neglecting all others, an exclusive commitment made and motivated by love. It's this same principle that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6.14. He said this, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You see, at our closest, most intimate relationships, at that center, it needs to be united. Shared faith guides and directs a family to pursue God and follow his ways. And how are we supposed to do that if we find ourselves devoting our wanting, devote ourselves to Jesus when our life partner is dedicated entirely to something different? You see, uniting two separate lives together in marriage is tough enough, right? yet alone if we're heading in opposite directions. And being spiritually divided at the core, it impacts us, it impacts those around us, and certainly it impacts our devotion and love for God. And these are values that we need to assimilate into our own life and also pass on to our children. And so I say this to you young people, the best way for you to avoid falling in love with someone outside of your faith who doesn't share that commonality is to make a steadfast commitment, steadfast commitment now ahead of time to only date people who love Jesus. Not to those who say they're Christians, because you'll find many of those, but to those whose words and actions actually demonstrate that they love and serve Jesus Christ. You see, compromise is never wise. And it's better to guard your heart from the very start. And you will not regret it if you do. The next commitment is a commitment to demonstrate faith in God. To demonstrate faith in God. Committing ourselves to God and devoting our way to Him can be challenging. But when it really costs us something, when there's really something on the line, the stakes raise and our faith and trust in God is really stretched And we see this in Nehemiah 10.31. It says, When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, 
we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on any other holy day. Every seventh year, we will forgo working in the land and cancel all debts. Now, if you recall from earlier messages, when we started talking about the people that were there in Jerusalem, we know that they were humble people. They were somewhat weak people, and they were poor. You see, all the leaders and the wealthy and the best resources of the land had been carried away away from Jerusalem and taken into captivity years ago. And those that were left had just been trying to rebuild their lives out of the rubble. And we also know that those that came back to Jerusalem later in waves, these were people that were just coming out of bondage in these foreign lands. And so for them to make a commitment to the Sabbath and potentially um, cause disruption between these foreign merchants who were bringing goods and food and services to them and potentially offend them, that was incredibly risky. That was really a risky move. And on more, even on a bigger scale was the idea of them, on the seventh year, God commanded them to rest and not work the land. This was an agrarian society, and for them to not work the whole year, and then on top of that, to forgive any debt that was owed to them entirely for that seventh year. Why, these were huge, huge commitments of faith that put them in a perilous position of dependence on God. These are inspiring portraits of faith and trust in God. Now, maybe you, like me, have memorized at one point in time Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's popular verses to memorize. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Great verses to memorize. Great verses of faith but also challenging verses, verses to live by, right? But isn't it true that we so honor God when we trust Him every day, every moment, in every circumstance? That honors God. You ever notice when, when you read through the New Testament how, how Jesus is so impressed with people's faith? He calls out and calls attention to over and over again amazing works of faith, just simple trusting in him. And also, he's just amazed sometimes at the lack of faith that people had. You see, faith is important to God. The book of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you know what that means? It means that our faith gives God incredible joy, incredible joy. It's a sign that our relationship with him is deep and solid and that we know and trust him. So there was a young couple that had these two boys. They were ages 8 and 10 years old. And these two boys were incredibly mischievous. Matter of fact, if there was some kind of disruption that was going on in the town, you could pretty much count on it was these two little boys that were behind it. The chaos was constant, and the parents were overwhelmed and consumed with all of this craziness that was going on. So they decided to themselves, they just about had it. They decided these boys need a little religion in their lives. So they called up the pastor at the local church, and they set up a meeting. And these little boys, they walk sheepishly into the pastor's office. They sit down in the little chairs. They're looking up at the pastor behind the big desk. And the pastor's thinking, how am I going to relate God to these little boys that have just no idea who he is? And he thought, well, you know what? I'm going to show them how God is connected to everything in the universe. We can see him everywhere. So he, he came up with this question. He said, boys... Where is God? 
And the boys just kind of sat there silently and didn't say anything, kind of looked at each other. No, boys, listen. Where is God? And suddenly those little boys' eyes got real big. They started to shake, and then they just ran out, ran out, ran through the town, ran home, hid in the closet, just shaking. Their mama's looking for them. She finally finds them. She says, boys, what's going on? Why did you run away? Oh, mama, we're in big trouble. God's missing, and pastor thinks that we did it. <laughs> Sometimes we struggle. We wonder, where is God? Where is God? Maybe there's an issue you know, that we're facing, an insurmountable issue at work with our finances, with our relationships. Maybe there's a personal issue that we've battled for years. And we look and we see, where is God in this? And we struggle and we wonder. And as odd as it sounds, this is the best place for faith. You see, committing ourselves to trust God when he might seem distant or absent, why, that's the deepest and strongest faith that we can muster. It's a faith that grows us, that stretches us, and a faith that really honors God. Sometimes we need to commit to taking steps of trusting and believing God and having faith beyond our own understanding. And in that deep place of faith, it's there that we discover that God was there all along. The last commitment is a commitment to invest generously in God's work. This final commitment the people made was to support the work and worship of the temple. You see, the temple or the house of God was the place of sacrifice and offerings, the place of festivals and feasts. It's where the spiritual life of the community was centered. And for many years, they completely neglected the ministry of the temple, and it had dulled the religious temperature of the entire nation. But as the temple walls and the temple itself were beginning to be restored, they wanted to restore their spiritual lives as well. And we see this in Nehemiah 10, 32 to 33, and then at the end at 39. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house, our God, for the bread set out at the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the moon feasts, and the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. So these verses and several that follow it list specific ways that the people were committing to support the temple, the house of God. And these included things like an annual tax on each person. It included providing the crops, grain, finances, and the animal sacrifices needed for the temple. These are sacrifices that would remind them that it was innocent blood and only innocent blood that would cleanse them from sin, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would come in the future. Verses 37 to 39 recount their pledge to give a tenth or a tithe of their income to support the temple ministry and also the Levites and the priests who ministered there. We will not neglect the house of our God. So today, you know, obviously we don't have a temple. <laughs> in fact, the Bible tells us that we, as the body of Christ, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is amazing. 
But what we do recognize is that the church is organized and equipped by ministry leaders. And that ministry is coordinated through facilities that are funded by the people of God. And God encourages us to be generous in our giving because what we spend our money on ultimately shapes what we're invested in. Luke 6.38 says this. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. You see, when we give, we're almost always likely to get more than we ever did in return. Now, there's a great example of this. Back in 1995, the University of Southern Mississippi received a donation of $150,000 for their scholarship fund. And the donor was an 87-year-old woman, and her name was Osceola McCarty. There's a picture of her right there. Osceola had been forced to drop out of school in the sixth grade in order to help support her family. And for over 60 years, she washed clothes for a living, and she scraped up and saved as much as she could. And from these meager wages, she wanted others to experience the education that she never received herself. And so she gave away her life savings to the university. And you see, her generation inspired thousands. And now that scholarship bears her name, and it continues to pour out blessings beyond her years. You see, our society, our society values how much a person has, while God values how much a person gives. You see, God loves when we're generous because our generosity reflects him as the ultimate giver, the one who gave it all for us. And so all of these are commitments that change us. They're all commitments of significance to obey God's word, to lead our families, to act in faith, and to give generously to God's work. These are commitments that change these people, and these are commitments also that have the potential to change us as well. I think it's important for us to consider these commitments, to evaluate them, to have them reflect back on our own lives, and to ask ourselves, who and what are we committed to in this time? What is the cry of our heart? What if God had a special purpose for us in this time? And what might happen if God were to do something new through our commitment to follow him? What might rise up from that? These are questions that I'm asking myself and questions I encourage you to reflect on as well. And maybe this is a time that God's stirring your heart, as he did with these people, to make a commitment. To make a commitment to align your heart and actions with God's word. And so you'll see at the bottom of your message notes, there's a little space there where maybe you might write out a commitment. It's one of these or one of your own. Between you and God, figure out what that might be. And then you'll also see at the very bottom, there's a place where you can write your signature as a sign of your own revolution that God's doing in your life. And I encourage you to remember that the commitments we make are only as strong as our reliance on God. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Will you pray with me?
Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you that your word stirs our hearts, God, to know you. And I pray that you help us to hear your voice and to know your heart through your word. And that it would be like a magnet that would draw a love and a devotion to you that would be a motivating factor to help us to want to align our heart with yours. God, in great humility, help us just to lay our lives before you and to give you open reign, God, to begin to fix and to heal and to mend broken fences, God, where we have run astray. And to make specific and dynamic commitments of obedience to follow you in those ways. Beyond our ability to do that, but God, we rely on your spirit to help us. Because Lord, ultimately, there's such joy and freedom when we follow you and commit our way to your ways. So Lord, do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.